Von Hof told us in regards to the final table, nothing else has been on my mind, but he tries not to think of the $10 million. That can be a distraction. He makes the call. Definitely at the highest stakes, you have to be able to distance yourself from your emotions or to use your and emotions he just calls. in a way that serves you in the game. Now Von Hof with kings up, but a dangerous board. All in. Oh, and he puts Larabe all in. Boy, I didn't expect that. So you can feel anxiety, but you can reframe it as just being energy. Makes the call. If you think of it as anxiety, then, you know, it, it might wear you out and you might, might make a, a wrong decision based on it. Von Hof with the hero call that came up empty. So why is it that the beast so damn Being aware of that, being mindful, and using it as adrenaline because sometimes you have to play for 11 hours straight and adrenaline can be useful. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Steinfurt, your host, and today we have two really cool, unique individuals who have their own backstories in the game of high-stakes poker. Jurit van Hoof, who is a professional poker player originally from the Netherlands, who rose to stardom finishing third in the World Series of Poker main event for over $3 million, total career winnings over over five mil, I think, so far. I'm not sure if I'm keeping up to date with that, but he's good. Let's just put it that way. Welcome to the show, Yorick. Oh, thank you for having me, Betty. Thank you. And also joining us is Jared Tenler, who's a leading expert in the mental game of performance. Coaches professional athletes, but specifically of interest on this show is he coaches world champion poker players and financial traders, author of The Mental Game of Poker, also The Mental Game of Trading. Welcome to the show, Jared Tenler. Thanks, Patty. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you both. I read, the, I read both of those intro notes and I'm like, holy shit, we got some real badass dudes on the show right now because you guys deal with some pressures. It's a little different. Some of the other guests that we have on the show, they deal with life and death situations, which hopefully none of the three of us have to deal with in our day-to-day work. But this is a really interesting world because there is a level of pressure of millions of dollars literally sitting on the table in front of you that I suggest creates some internal states and external actions that are pretty how people react when they're under fire and bullets are firing. So I'm really keen to dig into that. Jurek, we'll start with you. I'm really curious. I've been to your hometown. You're calling in from Eindhoven in the Netherlands. I had a blast. It's like a, a fun town, right? And I'm looking at that and I'm like, how does a guy, who, a kid who grows up in Eindhoven in the Netherlands, end up on the final table at the World Series of Poker? Where did that journey start from you, for a kid from Eindhoven to end up dominating in the world of poker around the globe? So how did I get into poker? As a kid, I was playing a different card game, Magic the Gathering. I don't know if you heard of, of that. It's like a collectible. I think I've heard, yeah, I've heard the yeah. title, but it's not really yeah. like your card game you play at a casino though, right? No, I wasn't allowed in the casino back then. Yes, I started when I was like 12 or something. But I was always like playing. I have always been playing with cards, even before poker. And out of that card game, it was a collectible card game. And you could like, so you could trade the cards. And that was what I was mainly interested in. And out of that trading those cards, I grew like a shop, a gaming shop. And in that gaming shop, we had room to play for our customers and some customers started playing poker in the shop. And then I just decided to jump in a game at one point. And as soon as- How old are you when you do that? When you just- 18. Okay. And from that moment on, like immediately I loved the game. I probably got lucky at the start and I got some talent for it. I noticed and I saw like potential in it and I loved it immediately. So- that's when I basically decided to play more and more. And after like three or six months, I stepped out of the gaming store. I, I, I sold my share to my ex-business partners and I dropped out of university. And I basically just went all in on poker. Excuse the pun. Wow, that, that really is going all in. Uh, so you quit your job, you sold your business, you dropped out of school. And you're like, I'm going to do this thing that I've only been doing for a year or two. That's a pretty huge leap. And that in itself is a, I mean, you've used the metaphor going all in, right? Let's jump straight to that because I'm sure it was going to come up at some point in the show. As you do that, what happens for you internally? Or did you just do it with the women bravado of a 19, 20-year-old guy just like, yeah, I can do this? Did you think through that? I guess I saw it as a like road to independence, which 
I valued a lot and that I wanted to create for myself. Like, it seems very adventurous, which it, it is like somewhat adventurous, <laughs> but like mostly like a, a road to independence. And I, I felt the need to create that for myself in my life. So I think that's what propelled me or gave me like the motivation to, yeah, basically decide, okay, I'm going like all in on this poker career. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Sense of adventure to set out on what's been an amazing journey and still going. Jared, I'm going to pivot to you here and ask you the same question, but different. How does a licensed mental health counselor, because that is your background academically and, and in terms of your study, how do you end up coaching some of the world's best poker players, trading mavericks, esports athletes? Yeah, I'd say maybe the bigger question is how do I even get to that point? Because for me as a kid, <laughs> I never intended to get there. That was not on my horizon. I, you know, was an athlete growing up. I played baseball, played tennis, played golf, basketball, really anything I get my hands on. I was competitive in, in all of that. And, you know, really just kind of looked to the professionals and just aspired to be a professional at something. I wanted to be great. And, you know, at 411 as a freshman in high school, my options were kind of limited. <laughs> so, you know, the realist in me says, okay, there's a bunch of short golfers out there. I think I can kind of make it a go with that. So freshman year, I, I kind of dive into it. I get very good, very quickly, but a little bit too late to get, you know, division one scholarships. I, I go to division three Skidmore college in upstate New York, kind of hedging my bet a little bit that, you know, worst case scenario, I'll get a good education. One, two tournaments at my freshman year, you know, kind of on track. And I go to qualify for the U S open, um, play the best golf of my, my life, tee to green, and basically puke on myself, missing a bunch of three or four foot putts, and ultimately miss a playoff by a shot, miss, you know, moving on to second stage of US Open qualifying, which is effectively a PGA Tour event because, you know, only 50 players qualify for the US Open automatically. So you've got, you know, these regional qualifiers that are mostly filled with, with tour players. So that was a huge opportunity that I, you know, squandered. And, at, you know, first time failure. Okay, not a big deal. One of the guys at my club hands me Bob Rotella's book, Golf's Not a Game of Perfect. And that starts my foray into sports psychology. And I continue to get better as a result of it. You know, it was a three-time All-American in college, won nine times. But when it came time to play in these big national events, USAM qualifying, you know, US Pub Links, these big events, I, I just kind of kept choking. I was significantly underperforming. And I kind of just sort of reasoned you know, because I kind of dove into a lot of the sports psych that was available. We're talking the late 90s here. It helped me in all situations except under those key moments. And I just kind of reasoned, I can't be the only one who's failing like this. And there kind of has to be another way. So I sort of departed from the traditional sports psych route and went into to traditional counseling therapy and got, you know, master's degree, licensed, two years, practiced. And once I got my license, I quit my job at Florida, Arizona and started blending traditional sports psychology with therapy to create eventually what turned into this program and this system that is what I would call based on this like performance flaw level where we're dealing with deeper issues than sports psychologists typically deal with, but not necessarily getting personal. And we kind of find this intersection and that's kind of what drove me to do this. And, you know, I also kind of had in the back of my head, like, Hey, maybe I could solve my own issues and still be able to play professionally. And I, I actually was able to do that a couple of years after getting you know, my practice started, I shot 63, 65, 69 in a series of big money events at a, at a local club that I was playing out of. And, you know, that was the breakthrough for me was, yes, it wasn't a big national qualifier, but my mentality in a situation that was pretty pressure packed because these were guys that not only was I competing against, but also trying to gain respect from as a player and as a coach and had, you know, access to lots of tour players. So there was a lot of pressure for me. And, you know, was able to handle it, started playing some professional golf, played too many tour events. And then ironically met a professional poker player who used to be a professional golfer. And at that point it was, okay, do I bash my head, you know, trying to compete with all the other golf psychologists that are out there and, and create my own practice? And, or do I, you know, enter this new market where there's infinite runway, there's nobody doing it. Or do I, you know, continue down my, my path of trying to play professional golf. And ironically, I think moving into professional poker was the safest of the, of all those bets. <laughs> well, there you go. If you can, sometimes you've got to take the safe bets, right? You mentioned the one word there that I think is going to be a common theme throughout this show, which was pressure. So a lot of the talks on this show will talk about people who are successful in a certain area that specifically has one of two things or maybe both stress and pressure. 
but they're a little bit different. And you mentioned the nuance there of the traditional sports psychology versus the how do you deal with those pressure-packed moments, which are, it's, it's a different mindset. It's a different approach that I, I'm sure listeners have heard me mention a couple of times along the way in different episodes. Like I had a similar journey as a professional athlete, found helpful this sports psychology stuff until it wasn't. And it's led me down this path. So that's how I met you two. But can the listeners hear a little about either of you can take this one. Yorit or Jared, how did you two come to cross paths? So we've heard the preamble of Yorit getting into poker, Jared ending up as a poker coach, so to speak. How do you two meet? I remember what year it was. I'll let Yorit, because it was a decade ago. So <laughs> his memory might be a little bit better than mine. I don't know the year, so I'm glad that you... Uh... You remember the year, <laughs> but uh, like for me, the one thing about like a key trait of a good poker player is to always focus on the process and not so much the outcome, and always try to optimize every decision and your process basically. And I soon realized playing a lot online in the first bunch of years, mostly online, some at the casinos, but like eighty percent plus percent online. You're sitting in this room behind this uh, PC, clicking the button all the time, making fast decisions, playing poker. That there was also like a mental aspect to it to be optimized in that process. So I believe that I basically just uh, used the internet and came up uh, to uh, Jared pretty quickly. And I, I think I approached him and just uh, asked for his coaching. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you chose Jared that you chose for... Uh, Option C, like going into the, the poker, mar oh, poker, <laughs> market, poker market. Yeah. And that way I did get to meet you. So um, I think that's how it went that I just was like cognizant of, okay, I have this process going on and there's a mental aspect to it and I need to investigate this. And the best way to do that is to have a professional look at it and give me corrective feedback basically on where I can improve. Like in look, and, looking and, in the mirror, you only see so much. And what I would say about your, in terms of what I've learned about him, I mean, that those principles of precision, optimization, intellectual curiosity, I mean, that, that kind of epitomizes not just his work with me, but just his, his road as a professional. I had him come in and speak with some esports players when we were in the Netherlands, and they were very quickly impressed by his ability to pick up a game that he had never seen before and be able to speak conceptually about it very rapidly. So, you know, you, you sort of saw how he was able to transition from Magic the Gathering to poker. And so that kind of mind as it dives into, you know, the mental aspects, you know, to me, it's a game. I, I, I like the term mental game because we're not talking about mindset. We're not talking about a static entity. I like the word toughness because it implies some action, some growth that's involved. And so Yort has a mind that is is like weaponized for games and optimization. And I mean, he's incredibly brilliant at it. And so I think our kind of philosophies align very well in that regard. And, you know, so in that regard, we're kind of a, a great match in, in terms of a coach-student, you know, collaborative relationship. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. In the heat of battle, you do need to have some ability to either disconnect or to counteract or correct your emotions in real time. Otherwise, they are going to compromise you. So damn proud. What does toughness mean to you as a competitor? The world level of poker, like in the top few hundred poker players in the world. Keep focusing on the things that are within your control and change what you can change and what you should change. And then do that day in, day out with grit. So have grit and do it with a poker face as well <laughs> when you're at the tables. Like you have to keep your emotions in check when playing. So that can be tough, of course. And you have to do it in day in, day out to hone your skills and get more experienced. And you have to accept whatever is at the poker table. Like there's a big luck factor while playing. So you can't control that. 
So you have to keep focusing on the process of things that you can control. Yeah, really, really. Cool. You mentioned three things there that are central to a lot of the answers people give. One was acceptance, almost really, or, or by accepting some of them, right? Yes. Two was distance and consistency required to get really. So you can do that for two days. It doesn't going to make you one of the best in the world at what you do. And number three, which is really interesting because it kind of ties into the first one, but is very specific to this game. The term poker face is the ability to regulate your own emotions. Now, whether it's externally, they might still be raging, but you have the poker face on. We might circle back to that in a second. But Jared, you got anything different to add there or you want to second any of the points you're made? I think on a large level, I certainly agree with all of his points. My style as a coach tends to be very kind of operationally driven and functionally driven. So for me, I look at toughness as simply a measurement of how strong you're connected to an idea or a goal. And so when we think about the people who are like the toughest or, you know, kind of embody that, we look at, you know, elite military, like the Navy SEALs and, and their connection to, you know, their creed, right? That, that they will draw on every amount of strength to complete the mission and to protect their teammates. You know, you think about Tom Brady and his commitment and his strength and his desire to win Super Bowls. And, you know, so much so we hear about the story of him, you know, back in May before it you know, this like fun golf tournament with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and how he's working out in the parking lot, right? Before he goes to play this televised event because he wants to win a Super Bowl nine months later. We think about, you know, Tiger Woods winning the 2008 US Open on a broken leg. Why? We just saw on, on the documentary on HBO, right? His caddy after Tiger hits the shot off the cart path and he can hear the, the leg break more, says, hey, Tiger, like, hey, I think maybe you, it's time to kind of put this away. You're going to do some long-term damage. And he says to him, F you, I'm winning this event. Like when we think about mental toughness, I, to me, it's, it's how strongly are you connected to that, that idea or that vision or that goal? And we can also look beyond and say, okay, people who are religious, right? How, how strongly are they connected to their doctrine? Parents, how strongly are they connected to their desire to give their kids a better life? And so when we look at the breakdowns, and this is where I'm kind of more interested because typically I'm not working with the people that have already mastered all that. I'm typically working with people who are aspiring to be tougher. We're really looking at where those breakdowns occur and we can kind of parallel, you know, the physical strength to mental strength, right? And you can evaluate breakdowns and toughness like you would breakdowns muscular. You know, what are the circumstances where that toughness disappears? Does it disappear, you know, for your example of, being very process-minded at the poker table. Are you able to be very process-minded for 90% of the tournament until suddenly there's life-changing money on the line, right? For, uh, you know, I've got a, a guy playing in the Corn Ferry Tour who's, you know, basically it's like the AAA of, of professional golf. He struggles when the conditions don't give him perfect results, right? A little gust of wind affects his, his ball. He misses a couple putts in a row because he did everything right. And so there's this illusion that he has full control over his results. And so there we find the breakdowns and toughness. And that to me is where, you know, I think some of the magic lies in being able to elevate and, and build and become tougher, right? That's not tough, it's toughness. It's how do you build more of it? And to me, it's really isolating where those breakdowns occur and figuring out what the flaws are or the cause of that, correct it and you get tougher. You work yourself to be able to operate in those circumstances with, with more of that. Yeah, I mean, really cool couple of points there that we will circle back to one of them where you said the breakdowns in toughness and how we actually work on them. There's one specific one I want to circle back to in a minute, but I want to go back to the idea of poker face that you raised that I was hoping would come up because, again, it's a very specific term that's exactly, a you know, it came out of this game, this, uh, well, not just a game, a career for you, Yurik. It, normally I ask people, what is one key mental or emotional trait of top performers in your area? This is a very important skill to be able to maintain a calm facade, even if you're going all over the place inside, right? It's, would it be fair to say that there isn't a successful poker player who can't do that? Or sorry, let me ask it the other way. Is there anyone who is very good that can't do poker face? Well, you could play poker online and you can play poker at the casinos. So uh, <laughs> online, okay. the poker face is a little less important, good as you answer. can understand. <laughs> <laughs> there are really good online poker players who 
have more difficulty like maybe maintaining a poker face but at the same time like poker face is sort of a metaphor for like emotional regulation and yes. even if you're playing online you'll have to keep your emotions in check maybe even more because the decisions are going way faster so whenever you lose or win a few big pots you'll have to remain focused and else you know you'll uh, self-destruct basically so yeah it's going to be difficult to not have the ability to have a distance between you and your emotions basically like i wouldn't necessarily think that even talking from my own experience that emotional regulation is a prerequisite like i used to just be able to disconnect i think from my emotions so now at almost 40 years of age i'm still working on becoming more emotionally regulated it's just that in poker it helped to be able to disconnect from my emotions and then make the decisions more like cold or calculated as you could say so i think being able to distance yourself from your emotions maybe even it's happening like not so consciously you know it's just happening like an yeah. automatic process i'm just like built for that some poker players Maybe some other poker players, they worked towards that and it's uh, something they achieved. Definitely at the highest stakes, you have to be able to distance yourself from your emotions or to use your emotions in a way that serve you in the game. So you can feel anxiety, but you can reframe it as just being energy, being aware of that, being mindful and using it as adrenaline because sometimes you have to play for 11 hours straight and adrenaline can be useful. If you think of it as anxiety, then, you know, it, it might wear you out and you might, might make a, a wrong decision based on it. Great example. I mean, I was about to say, can you give us an example of when you use an emotion as opposed to ignore it and you, you answered it at the time? So that, that's a, a really good one because this is not just to poker. You think about someone who's trying to do a negotiation in business, someone who's trying to present for a promotion, someone who's trying to ask someone out, there is an element of there's shit going on inside that I can't let other people see. Otherwise, it affects the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Now, whether you actually regulate the emotions, you made a good point there. Sometimes in about regulation, some people can just disconnect. But to you, Jim, a licensed mental health counsellor, that that's probably not the most healthy way to handle things. If there's a emojiing, some people's coping strategy is to just disconnect, just literally ignore them or just distance and probably over time, that's not healthy, right? But there is what Jarrett, what Jarrett has described there is a, a blend of kind of distancing, but more an acceptance and then even a rechanneling. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about time and place and where each person is in their evolution as a, a competitor, an athlete, a poker player, a trader. I don't kind of subscribe to this kind of one fits all philosophy. I think we have to kind of meet the person where they are and what they're capable of, because if you ask too much of them, they're not going to do it. It's going to cause failure and make things worse. So yeah, I think in the long run, you know, you want to have a kind of a more integrated understanding of your emotions. And I think the, the long-term outcome that we're after really is to have your emotions be pure enough that you're not kind of imprinting your own biases and illusions into the, the competition, into the action, right? It's not that you can actually use anxiety or frustration or, perhaps overconfidence or lack of confidence as signals of what's kind of going on within the game so that you can kind of modulate and make adjustments technically and tactically, not, not anything kind of mental, you know, but kind of short of that. Yeah. In the heat of battle, you do need to have some ability to either disconnect or to counteract or correct your emotions in real time. Otherwise they are going to compromise you now in the long run. So let's say after a 12 hour poker session, what are we going to do with the information that we found? What are the triggers? What were the things that caused the emotional volatility within a poker session, within a trading session, within a round of golf? Then we need to analyze that and break it down and isolate the flaws that then can be worked on because that's where the growth comes from. So, you know, in the short term, in the heat of battle, yeah, you need to do everything you can to perform at your highest level. And that sometimes will mean disconnection. Sometimes it will mean, no, I'm actually going to be more acknowledging of my emotions because as you become more integrated, you can simultaneously be aware of what's going on, correct them, and be able to adjust to that, that kind of internal process very quickly and still perform very well. To me, that's how the transformation begins to happen. 
right? You can't really correct mental game flaws, you know, kind of in, in the practice environment. It has to occur in the training environment. And I think this is perhaps what, what you may have experienced as well as a competitor for me was, okay, here are these points of failure. How can I get over the hurdle? I, I have to be able to take what I'm learning in training and apply it, you know, in those, those critical moments. And that is often what that, that process looks like. It's, it's just kind of ugly and messy where you're making these kind of incremental improvements. I like to say you're just sucking less. And then over time, you keep sucking less enough, you're going to be pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that process of sucking less, as you put it, is key. And I, I have found that as well. And we'll talk to coaches or GMs in particular, CEOs, people who own the performance company, but aren't actually performers themselves in this acute high stakes environment is that they look at it like, oh, you can do in the two month off season, you can do a program and we'll get better. I'm like, mm, you kind of have to be exposed to the fire a little bit to get better at this internal stuff because it's very hard to replicate those responses. One of which, this leads me to the, the question I'm going to talk about as a, as a breakdown in mental game that is, it's not necessarily specific to poker, but a, the term tilt originated out of the poker playing community. And I came across it, well, as a kid when I was playing pinball, but it really refers to when players lose control due to anger or what's going on inside them. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, it did originate in pinball. If you ever have played pinball and you can see the ball going down the middle and it's going to go between the flippers and you're like, ah, and you get really upset with it or angry or nervous and you, you literally move the machine, nudge it a little bit so that it goes back towards one of your flippers. And then the machine shuts down and you can't use your flippers at all because it says you tilted. That's the origin of the term, but it now applies not only in poker, but esports, chess, a lot of these strategy-based but high-pressure games where the players themselves will talk about tilting. And so Justin Oliver, who is a World Series of Poker bracelet winner, says about you, Jared, that when he's talking about his mental game, he says he doesn't tilt anymore thanks to your work. And so what is that work? Like how do you actually take someone from someone who is tilting or does tilt in those key moments and then – X number of months later, they don't tilt anymore. First off, I'll say, I think tilt should be mainstream. You know, a lot of problems that we experience mentally and emotionally typically can be just described in a very kind of heavy, serious tone. And I think when you admit that you have a tilt problem, it's a lot more fun than saying you have an anger management, you know, you got to go to anger management. It's like, no, let's, <laughs> let's talk about tilt. So, you know, if you're going to have an anger problem, let's have a little fun with it. So, yeah, I think there should be ubiquitous everywhere because effectively tilt is basically the anger rises to a point and it shuts down higher brain function. The part of the brain responsible for emotional control is compromised. So you make poor decisions because you don't have the cortical space that you used to, to make decisions as you would normally. So how do you actually solve your anger issues? Well, you know, I've kind of alluded to it before. We've got to look at sort of the signals of the symptoms that exist on the surface. So we analyze your thoughts that arise, you know, in key moments. Uh, we analyze your emotional reactions. We analyze the ways in which your decision-making process breaks down in very specific, explicit terms. So, you know, as a poker player, you might forget one of the steps that are critical to making a decision, which, you know, for a lot of good poker players would include analyzing your opponent's hand strength, right? So if you forget to do that and you're only focused on your own hand, you're going to make a poor decision because now you're not kind of interacting with your competitor. You're basically just kind of playing a default style that based on your hand and your hand alone. And that's not really great ways of competing, whether you're a football team or a golfer, ignoring the, the data that's coming from the golf course. So that breakdown in decision-making has to be isolated. And as we kind of look at all of those signals and symptoms, we begin to understand what the underlying flaws may be. So are we dealing with what I call injustice tilt? Are we dealing with hate losing? You know, are you too competitive, right? Do you have some entitlement tilt, right? Which uh, if those of you know, Phil Helmuth is kind of the epitome of this, right? Where he believes because he is such a great poker player and because he has such this great track record that he deserves to win. And there's an element of kind of confidence kind of mixed into the, the anger there. Revenge tilt is my favorite, right? This is where players are very kind of aggressively re-raising you. And, you know, it feels like you're, you're kind of having to defend your own self-respect and, and all the rest of it. Uh, running bad tilt is a, a you know, happens where, where you're on, you know, this bad run where circumstances just kind of continue to go against you. Right. So we, we kind of look at, again, the signals on the surface, we start to categorize it, and then we look for the underlying flaws, right? Do you have an illusion of control? Do you have a hatred of mistakes? 
do you have some confirmation bias? Those are the things and then that what? ultimately. Because it, I, love, I love the fact that there's different flavors and you can have a favorite. And then we say, well, why, where is that coming from? But once you discover that, what do you do? Well, then you come up with a correction. And you know, I know there's going to be a yada yada in that. But so the in the moment process to me has to include these four steps. So the first thing is the recognition early. Poker players, traders, esports, like by and large, when I start working with people, they're very well aware of when the problems occur in its biggest form, but they're not aware of the signals that indicate a problem is going to happen several steps from now. And if you can identify those signals, because they do exist, you're just not aware of them yet. You don't have the recognition skill yet. If you can identify it then, you have the brain matter that can actually work to correct a problem before it actually emerges. And that Mm -hmm. to me is critical because if you start kind of chipping away at it, you're going to have an impact. You're going to delay the onset of tilt. And if it does occur, you already kind of established a foundation of of progress that's going to allow you to attack it. So the four-step process is recognize the signals early, disrupt the pattern, right? These patterns have a momentum all to themselves, right? First law of of thermodynamics, right? An object in motion stays in motion. You got to be the outside force that changes it. So you can take a deep breath, right? Which has a physiological benefit. I know you've spoken about that. You can stand up. You can do anything, you know, throw a ball against the wall, anything to disrupt the pattern. Then you got to inject logic. We call this a mantra, call this, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever you want to call it. The technique of injecting logic is training a piece of an idea that is correcting the underlying flaw. So for somebody who has injustice tilt, the correction might be poker is not fair. You want bad players to get good luck so that they falsely believe that they're good. So we're going to train that logic. You're going to study it regularly so that it gets strong in your mind so that in that moment, it has the potency to change your emotional state. And then the last step is to think strategically. What, what do I need to do specifically in these moments to be better tactically, strategically? Nothing to do with mental game. So like more about like, okay, we've got ourselves emotionally stabilized. How am I now going to play a little bit better? How am I going to sort of suck yeah. less in that moment? You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... When you're playing poker, it's very valuable not to like feel hurt and not to admit that you feel hurt and then feel invulnerable basically so damn i think you if we use that framework using Yorit's description of the flipping anxiety a little bit there's the recognition like you said pattern interrupt but then specifically reframing that to be like yeah that's not anxiety it's, it's adrenaline and get back to focusing on what the next step is what's what am i doing this hand what's my next move really cool repeatable process that's Awesome. I'm going to flip to you now, Yura, and picking up that first bit of recognizing the pattern early, where I will often say to performers I work with that, that our process is about the sucking less, in effect, is half of it is being able to recognize instead of after the event, like I recognize that I tilted the next day or that night when I'm on Twitter and the, and the world is telling me I suck to, oh, I recognize it after the game while we're sharing, to, I recognize it at halftime, to, I recognize it a minute after the play, to, I recognize it as it's happening, to, as you mentioned, Jared, I start to see it boiling up before it gets there. And I'm curious for you, Yorit, was there a period in time where these sort of effects or you would notice this after the fact and that part of your work of getting better, getting to the point where you're now a multi-million dollar winner of, of tournaments part of that process was earlier recognition? Yes, for sure. It took mm-hmm. me a long time before really recognizing and taking more serious some of these earlier signals. And you know, I think like part of it was through this like cons- type of counseling sessions with uh, Jared getting feedback in dialogue. And part of it was obtained through like meditation just becoming like more aware of uh, even like signals in my body. So before I started playing, oh, how do I feel something? I feel some unease that could be a signal. And then 
after a while, I started to see like uh, most of the time when I feel that unease, it has to do with something that happens in my like personal relationships. So very often, if there's like some friction in any of my important personal relationships, then it can bother me. And that's influences my play a lot at the tables. So I know now that, you know, either fix or repair whatever I have going on in the relationship that's important mm-hmm. for me. And obviously not only at the poker tables, I've learned that as well <laughs> at a pretty uh, late stage in my life, <laughs> but not too late. I'm yep. uh, happily married now. So <laughs> hey, congrats. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, so for me, it's I think that process and counseling really helped. Meditation really helped being like reflective and have having some tools to be reflective and be aware of those early signals. And then, yeah, for me, it's like mostly like 90 plus percent of the time, it's something in relationship. Sometimes it's like, oh, I didn't eat well, you know. <laughs> Obviously, everybody knows if you don't eat well, then you perform less strong. Whatever eating well means for you, you know, you, you have everybody has their own like preferences. Good examples, and, I, and I'm going to put you in an immersion event. So, in the military communities, particularly that I, that I've been lucky enough to become a part of, they talk some a mission critical event, which is a an immer- what they call an immersion. So, once you go in, you can't go back. Uh, because it makes it worse like you've kicked the door of a village down in afghanistan you can't then run away like that's bad news and you've started Mm -hmm. this thing that has to be finished it often will only take 10 minutes but there's the plans that you had changed it's it's an emergent event so things shift as you're going along and it really does apply when i first found out about this um i was i was like oh well that's cool but it's life and death but they said no when you're working with professional athletes esports whatever it's the same kind of thing like you're are sitting at a table when you decide to put all of your chips in the middle or someone calls you to do that and you you're like okay i am the same thing happens once the chips are in you're not going back the play changes as the cards are turned over there are many similarities and particularly with what happens to us as we try and make effective decisions under those constraints so using that little setup that you beautifully gave me a second ago of becoming aware of what's happening in your body of your state and of whatever else might be happening for you. If we just assume it's a normal day, you've got decent, you know, your lace chips are all steady. You had a good meal. It's only four hours into a session. So you're not like dead tired and it's an all in moment. Can you talk us through what happens to you? What are you normally aware of that happens as that happens, particularly if we're talking about life-changing money on the table? It depends a lot if all of your chips are already all in. If that's the case and your opponent is still like deciding and he's like looking right at you, then you basically just want to appear as a statue or like a, a robot, you know? I mean, you, you don't want to give off any. Then the poker face comes in handy. So, gotcha. yeah, your internal dialogue should be tuned into helping keep up the facade because you're basically deceptive because you're bluffing if you're all in for and mm-hmm. you don't have anything in the case that you're not all in for all your chips but you have like one more street to play so in poker you always have like multiple streets to play so you make a big bet your opponent calls and then the next street comes so it could feel i mean you you already kicked in the door but uh <laughs> you, you 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 know you you aren't fully committed yet and that's those are like very like difficult moments because then you have the next decision to make and you have to keep in account like okay i kicked in the door are we really like entering full guns are we blazing? Going? And, uh, yeah, yeah are we going so heart, go heart rate is up like you're sweating a little bit like tell us what's happening physically i mean if i'm playing my like a game if i'm playing my best game then i'm feeling very calm and confident and then there's not a lot of self-doubt and I'm like totally open, like feelings of like love towards the game and feeling connected. They are also part of it, part of all that like conscious experience in that moment. And then if I'm not playing my A game and you cannot always play your A game, then self-doubt could creep in. And then I could feel my heartbeat, for instance. So thoughts might pop up like, oh, did I make the correct play here? Am I like overcommitting too many chips here? Should I not go all in? You know, it's 
doubtful thoughts instead of being able to fully execute the uh, game optimal strategy while being like open and receptive to uh, your opponents. That's more like the first state, like your A game. Then you're more like very confident and aware of everything. Then my body is very calm. And if that's not happening and I feel my heartbeat, then my focus just goes to like playing more like a, a basic strategy that I know is like good enough, basically, instead of like optimal, which you strive for. And basically, I'm like trying to regulate myself and not give away any tells, trying to regulate my breathing, getting back to the moment. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, it's a great, you make me think of, I can't even list how many performers, not only on this show, but people I work with, how common it is for people to talk about the knowledge of I have an A game, but I also can't do that all the time. And part of being really good is when I have my B or even my C game is just doing enough. Like just being able to shrink, shrinking my thinking to I'm just going to do these three things. And if I do them, I'm giving myself the best chance I have while I have a C game going on. That's actually one of the main lessons, maybe even like the, like on a technical performance point that I learned from Jared is like return to B game. That's like a mantra for me, you know. If I feel I'm I'm off off peak, return to B game. It's it's so useful to state that to myself. And yeah, that's a, so that's, that's an that's awesome that's little a, takeaway. Yeah, for sure. It's it's it's. Uh, I think it's applicable in in many more domains as well. Yeah, for sure. There's a couple. I know we're getting close to the end of the show here, so. I don't want to skip over really key points though. Like a lot of this, we've talked about both of you. Jared was very open about his failures um, or some harder times that he went through on the golf course in particular. We've only talked about how things have been good for you. I'm going to assume that winning some, some, you know, getting to the final table in World Series of Poker, winning the tournament in Australia are, are highlights. It's nice to walk away with a big check with lots of zeros on it or lots of commas, let's say that. If you're talking about a hardship, though, along your path to where you are now, what was one of the harder times that you had that you needed to bounce back from? I think I, I said it before, but like part of toughness is like humility as well for me. And I always had like some difficulty with that. Like in my internal dialogue, I always like felt invulnerable almost at the poker tables. And when you feel invulnerable, it's difficult to admit where you're weaknesses are for instance and i think that's originated like from some tough times so some hardships in my life like when i was 16 i needed to go to the hospital and it was in a life-threatening situation i was in the hospital for almost a month and then like three or four months in recovery in my bed at home after that i obviously survived so that's good <laughs> but it's it uh, like kind of like installed like the belief of like, I, I was very out of touch, I think with my anxieties and I was dissociated from my anxieties of like possibly dying in the hospital. And I think that like installed this, like believe in me that I'm invulnerable. And somehow like that was like very useful in, in poker, that, that hardship it was yeah. very useful in poker because it helped with the poker phase. But at the same time, my relationships, it, didn't always help to like feel invulnerable and not being able to talk about like what you might be getting wrong or admitting where somebody can hurt you for instance like when you're playing poker it's very like valuable not to like feel hurt and not to admit that you feel hurt and then feel invulnerable basically but in real life of course you when you're in a relationship it, it helps to be able to open up and say like hey this hurts me. yeah so yeah, I think from that hardship, and I, I've had a couple of those where it really like helped me in my poker career, but it also came at a cost like in real life. And I ended up a couple of years ago in a like deep de depression, I think also followed from like the same like way that I coped with that hospital experience um, right. by dissociating from like any bad feelings. Yeah, I think to me, Toughness, like the lesson that I learned, isn't like only going after that goal and then achieving that goal by working day out, day in, day out. 
but it's also like the humility is very important and acknowledging to yourself like more holistically like hey i'm a human being with like some faults and with vulnerabilities and being able to step out of your comfort zone and then face like those fears or whatever you have so yeah i'm not sure if i communicate it completely uh, absolutely here, yeah. but i think so like i mean i mean firstly i appreciate you sharing that experience because it's a strong reflection of one of the very common refrains on this show and probably one of the reasons why it was started in the first place is the misperception or misconception of toughness as the grit your teeth grind it like it's there's to be tough but actually as we're talking to more and more people who perform at a world level like yourself there's a discovery along the way that there's a, a large component of it is actually flexibility that what works in some situations doesn't work in others and that that approach to dissociation, whilst it might be helpful at the poker table, doesn't necessarily help you in other areas, or even sometimes might hurt you at the poker table if you're not fully in touch with what's going on. And so, Jared, I'm going to call you back in there because talking particularly as with mental health has been lobbed on the table there, how often do you work with performers where flexibility becomes emotional flexibility, cognitive flexibility, psychological flexibility, whatever you want to term it, is one of the key elements that you have to work on because they've become so good at grinding or pushing or enduring or stone facing that they need to actually develop. Okay. Well, yeah, that's cool for these situations, but that template doesn't always apply. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly common. I think if I look at the kind of arc of my career early on, it was, you know, working with athletes, performers, mostly just in that sphere. And then, you know, as they have a lot of success, things outside of the game begin to kind of infiltrate a little bit and, you know, their goals change, their aspirations change. What do you do with, you know, a 22 year old poker player who's suddenly worth millions of dollars? And I'm not referring to your here. they never thought that they would be in that position. How does that affect them elsewhere? How overconfident do they become? And what, what we find is that sometimes these unresolved personal issues from their past now kind of start to pop up weaknesses there. So I think the flexibility to, you know, kind of analyze those personal things can sometimes affect us while we're performing, but they also can affect us outside of it, which then affects training and preparation and reflection and, you know, kind of the full circle of what you're trying to do. And so I think the flexibility comes in if you're not operating, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally at the level that you want to be, regardless of what environment we're talking about, whether it's a competitive one or personal one, that you you have the the humility, the honesty, the self-reflection to ask the right questions. Why am I feeling this way? And if you ask that question, you'll either start to get answers or you'll gather information that you can then bring to an expert who can help you kind of wade through it and be able to solve those problems. I mean, I think my, my job, either as a performance coach, a mental coach, a therapist, whatever you want to say, I'm just a problem solver. That's it. I, I have tools for problem solving and they tend to be kind of weaponized for competitive performance but they can be applied everywhere else. And, and all of the, the concepts that we're talking about in this podcast today, the concepts that you speak about in the show regularly, they apply everywhere. And that, that to me is the coolest thing because when you learn the concepts and the skills and the processes, you know, you learn how to fish, right? It's not about somebody giving you fish and, and off you go. It's, it's being able to understand, you know, how to problem solve for yourself. And sometimes that means getting personal and diving into things that are more uncomfortable just because they're unfamiliar where you're not really good at problem solving in that way, you know, or we're talking about performance and, you know, you're steps away from, you know, winning the masters and you can't quite get over the hurdle and you don't really know what's blocking you, but you've got to do that self-reflection and then have that honesty and that, you know, humility to say, here's where I suck. How can I suck less? <laughs> That's a great, there's a, one of the Navy SEAL trainers who I mentioned in that, uh, who introduced me to that mission critical community said that the old school coaching was you suck, suck less. And it, you just reminded me of it there, but that really is what we're trying to work on here. And I love the way you put that this work that Yorit has done that you do on the daily, Jared, with your other clients is about learning to fish as opposed to learning how to dominate one specific game. Now, it definitely helps you do that second part. But for those of us like me, who their best card game is go fish, uh, it still can help me in other areas if I'm if I manage to master the the art of of mental fishing if you will so on that note we I really want to thank you both again for coming on and sharing your journeys your personal experiences some great takeaways 
for people who want to find you after the show, you're it. I'll ask you, what's the best way people can follow your journey or get in touch with you or be a supporter? I do have a Twitter and a Facebook account. I don't log in very frequently, but you can shoot me a message there. And at some point I will definitely answer you or else uh, hit me up on uh, LinkedIn. I get those messages straight in my uh, email. Thanks for having me, uh, Patty. Uh, it was a delightful conversation. Very yeah, interesting. Cool. Our pleasure, man. Our pleasure. Uh, Jared, what about you? For people who like your perhaps, uh, are at a point where they're like, hey, I want to actually do something about this mental game. I needed someone to teach me how to fish. Uh, how do they find you? Uh, JaredTundler.com is my website. There's a ton of kind of free content there as well. Downloadable worksheets and blogs, et cetera. And then I'm fairly active on Twitter, uh, at Jared Tundler, but they can also find me on LinkedIn as well. If I can add like one thing, I feel like I really want to still say, like if there's like one takeaway from my experience, if anybody who's listening is considering taking like up counseling, please go. Like if you're like face your demons and just go. And from my experience, it's the best thing you can do. So face your demons, talk to your little person. <laughs> that is the best way to close the show. I normally say, hey, what do you hope for the future with your work and this conversation? And that's an awesome note to end on for those who are considering getting a coach, getting a therapist, whatever you want to call it. Like you're a tech, go face your demons. Talk to the little man inside your head or little woman, depending on who you are. Thank you very much, Yurik, for ending it like that. Appreciate you both. Good luck with uh, upcoming tournaments, Yurik uh, and Jared. Good luck with whatever you want to do with the golf from here on out. Appreciate <laughs> Thanks, you both. Buddy. Thanks, Appreciate guys. It. Thank you. So why is it got to be so damn Excellent, bustin' with the best of them Simply impressive, no worry and stressing I'm, I'm getting mine right now Put your shades on and let me show you how Yeah